We have been uh, this term looking at the letter of James, a very practical letter written originally for the Christians in the first century about what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus on the ground day to day in a practical way. And one of the themes of this letter has been the idea of seeking heavenly wisdom, God's wisdom. And today James presents us with a big picture framework about how we can live wisely in the present in light of the future. And we see throughout Scripture, uh, this is a theme about how we think about the future should shape how we live in the present. And whether in the Bible or not, we just sort of live that way. What we think about the future will inform our priorities in the present. And so this section we're looking at today, uh, James helps us uh, to think about wisely how to live wisely now in light of the future. And he gives three directives and we are covering uh, as you can see uh, on the um, there was uh, on the slide before there's it goes up to verse 12 we're going to be following chapter 5 verse 12 so a bit beyond that reading Uh, but the three directives are to be wise in the present is to know the uncertainty of our future to know the certainty of our future and to cultivate a patient heart So first of all, to be wise in the present is to know the uncertainty of our future. And the first thing that we see is that to be wise here, he's addressing a particular kind of person with a particular kind of outlook on life. He says there in verse 13, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. Now, we can, can relate to this to a certain extent, can't we? You know, the, we know what it's like to book a holiday. We don't just wake up in the morning and get on a plane and just go. We know what it's like to make strategic plans about our family, our business, our life, all those kind of things. But what is the problem? Well, the problem isn't, of course, in the making of the plans, but the heart attitude behind those plans. Uh, when we speak with such confidence about the future... And our plans, we speak as if the future is in our hands and is determined by our ability to plan ahead. It reveals a bit of a misplaced confidence in ourselves and ignorance and naivety about who actually controls the future. And we see the stark reality there in verse 14. You don't even know what tomorrow will bring what your life will be. You're like a smoke that appears for a little while and then vanishes. So in contrast to the description of the, the ancient equivalent of the jet-setting venture capitalist, because James describes the reality of the, you know, the Rupert Murdochs or the Steve Jobs of the world. He says, you're a smoke that appears for a little while and then vanishes, like an like an early morning fog that's gone by midday. And you think, oh yeah, there was fog in the morning. I forgot about that, that's right. Very, here one day, you don't know when your life will be taken from you. You know, you can be dedicated to health and fitness regimes. And you can find yourself attending a music festival on October 7 next to Israel, in Israel, and your life is taken from you. You don't know what your future holds. And speaking with such confidence about how the future will play out is not just ignorant and naive, but incredibly arrogant. We see there in verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. 
So it's living as if God is not in control of the future. So then what does it look like? What is wise living? Well, it looks like this. James provides an alternative in verse 15. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, it doesn't seem that James is kind of prescribing this strict mantra or this kind of new liturgy or something that Christians should utter every time they speak about the future. Although, adding Lord willing as a habit actually can be very helpful. Uh, We've seen how speech reflects our heart and also directs our heart. So that kind of language can be really helpful. But what James is really helping us do, he's directing us to think, not abandoning, thinking about what we might do in the future. He's actually helping us think about the nature of the future and how we think about it. See there in verse uh, 17, he describes it's sinful to not do what a person knows is a good thing to do. So he's not telling us, you know, you're not meant to think about the future at all. You're not meant to do anything in the future. No, it's actually, no, actually, there are things to do. There are actions to take. It is a sin for the person who knows what is good to do and doesn't do it. James isn't anti-planning, anti-intentionality. In fact, being passive and doing nothing can at times be described as sin, often called sins of omission. So then what is James directing us to do? It's to have an attitude about life and the future, that everything is really in God's hands and believing that. As I was preparing for this sermon, uh, while I was away, I listened to a sermon uh, from, even though I was actually on holidays, but I I was still, you know, weird things ministers like to do when they're on holidays is listen to sermons, but anyway. I was away, I was listening to this sermon by UK preacher Dick Lucas. Some of you might know, he was the rector of St Helens Church in London in Bishopsgate for many years. And he made the point in this sermon that despite all our so-called progress... He talked about recent technological advancements uh, in nuclear energy and rockets and things like that. Despite all the things that we have, which once could only be explained by this kind of concept of the God of the gaps or or must be God, we don't understand it. Despite the fact that many of these things now are explained by science, he said despite this trajectory of history, he said that I suspect that humanity will never be able to control and know the future with any degree of certainty, it will always be in God's hands, regardless of what other so-called progress is made in the future. And I share this with you because as I finished listening to the recording, it must have been the earliest audio sermon I've listened to. The date was first of Je- oh, it was in January 1968, right? So this is an audio recording. Oh wow, okay, there you go. And it was it was quite funny as I'm listening to this. It was clear. Even though that since 1968, I'm thinking, oh, that's why he's talking about rockets, because they're just about to send a man to the moon, right? So I'm thinking, despite all the technological advancements, all the things that have happened in scientific fields since 1968, we still can't control and predict the future. That hasn't progressed at all. Just have to look at the COVID pandemic, right? the end of 2019, most Australians thought that the bushfires across our nation would be the most significant national event in our national consciousness for many years to come, only to find ourselves in lockdown within a few months. 
we move from government orders to evacuate homes and communities one month to government orders to stay at home and not leave your home in another few months. There was a phrase going around at COVID, right? Uh, We're all in the same boat. Now, I know that it's true that some people are impacted much more than others about lockdown and all those kind of things, but it's true that whether you're a celebrity, a president or unemployed or whatever it was, everyone were taught around the world we can't control the future as well as we think we can. So the first thing that James wants to teach us about what it means to live wisely in the present is to know that our future is uncertain. It is in God's hands. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. Only God does. And we all know this, don't we? If we were to write a script for 2023, the amount of things that have happened this year that you would never have known about. You would never have predicted. The second thing that James wants to teach us about, the, about what it means to live wisely in the present sounds like he's saying the opposite. He's saying to be wise in the present is to know the certainty of our future. <laughs> he particularly wants to signal out the rich. Now, whether we consider ourselves rich by the standards we set ourselves in terms of globally, And historically, we are very rich. In terms of raw metrics, we have more so-called autonomy over our lives and our circumstances than any human beings that have ever existed in history. Even the concept of choice of job and career is a very recent novelty. So he's addressing the rich, so we should listen up. Verse 1, come now, you rich people. Then he goes on to describe... The future, particularly in regards to wealth and riches. And perhaps surprisingly, instead of saying, come now, you rich people, you don't know what tomorrow will bring because you're a mist and you're a smoke will burn, which he's just said, he actually describes with certainty and confidence something about the future. Weep and wail over the miseries that are coming to you, coming on you. And then he describes it. Your wealth is ruined... Your clothes are moth-eaten, your silver and gold are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You stored up treasure in the last days. He's describing a certain sure misery, suffering and pain for the rich. He describes a future where material earthly treasures and possessions have become worthless, even Precious metals like gold and silver, still considered today as some of the most stable, risk-free investments in times of economic uncertainty. Invest in gold, right? They've corroded and they testify against the rich. He describes an accountability that's going to come for a life of self-indulgence, greed and injustice. You notice those words there, in the last days, at the end of verse 3. It reflects a very particular perspective on human history that the rich in this passage do not have, that there is a certain end towards which everything is heading. Things won't go on like they are forever. This is, there are, there, there is a sense we are in these final days, like we're, we're in a section just before the, the whistle of history is about to blow where there will be accountability 
And James condemns the rich for spending these last days storing up treasures that are soon to become very much worthless. How foolish. Imagine if you knew with certainty that in a month's time, all the shares in BHP, for example, will become totally worthless. The stock market's going to crash. What kind of person with that knowledge would then go out and spend the next month buying as many shares in BHP as possible, right? You just think, what a fool, if you knew that. Now, insider trading regulations aside, (laughs) hypothetically speaking, shouldn't you be selling all your BHP shares or at least doing everything you can to prepare yourself and others for this crash that is coming? Why would you spend your last month investing in the very thing that is going to become worthless. But it is this seduction, I think, and this power and the corruption of our wealth, the deception and the lies that can be attached to it and the promise that it offers that can be so alluring. We see there in verse 4 this description of this corruption, an unjust business owner. In this example, a landowner who has not paid his workers. Verse 4, look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who reaped your fields cries out. And the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now, James could, of course, have had in mind a literal example of a rich landowner who might have, in the words of verse 5, lived luxuriously on the land and indulged in themselves. But it seems he's obviously as well making the bigger point, addressing the form of corruption and self-indulgence. He's describing kind of like an irony of And the ironic kind of foolishness of the person who has lived their life thinking that they're in charge, thinking they're unaccountable, thinking they're kind of the judge, they're in control. But the more they behave like that, the more that they behave that the world exists for them, the more they are actually, in the words at the end of verse 5, fattening your hearts for the day of slaughter. That is, the more you think you are the big boss, the owner of the farm the more you don't realise you're fattening yourself and proving yourself to be the livestock in line, first in line on the day of slaughter. Pretty bleak, isn't it? And to round off this section, he describes just how dark the seduction of earthly riches is, how it can drive people to murder the innocent, bringing to mind the way that Judas betrayed Jesus, the true righteous one, in exchange for 30 pieces of silver, The foolishness of the rich described in this passage is that they're living in ignorance, in arrogance of the ignorance of the certainty of the Lord's coming, and arrogance thinking they're in control. Ignorance of the certainty of the Lord's coming, the certainty of judgment, the certainty of accountability, the certainty of justice. In the previous passage we just looked at. The problem was with a misplaced confidence in our ability to plan and control the future, that arrogance. The emphasis here is a willful denial of the reality and the certainty of the future. The Lord is returning. There will be a day when we will all stand before our Lord and give an account for our lives. It's pretty chilling. So we've seen, right, to be wise in the present means knowing the uncertainty of our future... We're not in control. God is. We're like a puff of smoke here one day and gone. 
we've seen to be wise in the present also means knowing what is certain about the future, that the Lord is returning. And where we stand with him, how we have spent our time in these last days really matters. We're accountable for what we invest in, the treasures we're seeking. Now, there's a huge difference between living like the future is ours to write and the future is written by God. Which brings us to the third answer that James gives us to how we are to live wisely in the present in light of the future. And I think it ties together the previous two ideas. To be wise in the present is to cultivate a patient heart. We see there in the verse 7 the words, therefore. So previously, James has provided these two strong warnings, which we've just looked at, the folly of the arrogant planning and living, uh, and then also the living for the material wealth and prosperity. He now moves uh, to the positive, what wise living actually looks like, rather than what it doesn't look like. And the key focus here is patience in light of the future of the Lord's return. Therefore, in verse 7, therefore, brothers, be patient until the Lord's coming. And more specifically, we see in verse 8, attending to our hearts, you also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. There's that shift in that language you might have noticed from the beginning of the, fir- the, re- first, the first reading we have where it says, you who say, and there's also, listen, you rich people. That's the kind of, kind of those people out there to this kind of warmer, more affectionate brothers or brothers and sisters language at the beginning of this verse, uh, this section, suggests that these words are a little bit more directly to James's readers and that they're designed to comfort and encourage his readers. Not to say that those previous warnings were not applicable to them or that people like that weren't in that church Christian community, but more what is about to follow are designed to strengthen and build them up. And I don't know if you can relate to that experience as a Christian, if you've been a Christian for a while, but you can have those experiences that everyone else out there seems to be getting ahead, making successful plans, being able to, I don't know, cut corners on their mortgage, find a better deal, get their kids getting better circumstances, whatever it is. They seem so in control of their lives, their weekends, their priorities, whatever it is because they've kind of got this security of their life investments and life choices. And it's a bit like James is speaking to these Christians after this stark warning showcasing the foolishness of this kind of attitude, this kind of arrogant living, saying, it's okay, brothers and sisters. Be patient. The Lord's got this. You don't need to freak out about where things are going right now how things are going to turn out. Be patient. And it's interesting he gives the example again of a farmer. He's just referred to how the rich have abused the harvesters. He now gives a positive example. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. I think, I'm not a farmer so I don't know, but I believe... There is a a level of certainty and uncertainty in farming. There's a predictability, a relative predictability to the cycle of the seasons, and there's a level of certainty 
that crops will grow in one season and they won't grow in another season. And the successful farmer doesn't seek to speed up time, doesn't seek to control the seasons, but seeks to make the most of the seasons, waiting for the precious fruit that comes from investing wisely in the seasons at the time. This is the kind of patience that's on view in light of both the uncertainty and the certainty of our future. It's not a patience and a waiting that just goes to sleep. It's not a, it's like sitting in a waiting room. Sometimes Christians can be caricatured as being told to spend their whole lives just waiting for the next life, as if waiting and patience was a purely passive activity. No, waiting and patience is not about inactivity or a lack of intentionality, but an acknowledgement of who is actually in control. Waiting and patience is an acknowledgement that our main goal in the present is not to eradicate all suffering and to maximise happiness, but to live now under the lordship of Jesus in light of his return. And so James describes what it looks like to cultivate a patient heart in the remaining verses of this section. And we're going to kind of, as we, as we spend our last time, we're going to get a, have a mini sermon at the end, right? So we're talking about patient endurance. So today's sermon is going to be an example of that. It's going to be a bit longer, right? So there you go. It's going to be a dramatic presentation. So we've got a bit of patient endurance for you, right? Okay. So a couple of weeks ago we saw how our speech really matters, taming our tongue. Our speech uh, reflects who we are. It directs who we are. It can create communities and it can destroy them. Patient endurance in light of the Lord's return, in light of what we know and what we don't know about the future, looks like these three things in relationship particularly to our speech. First of all, James says, it's not complaining about one another. So you see there, verse 9, Brothers, do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. Now, James doesn't seem to be describing the important kind of complaints that Christians should be making about somebody who might be harming somebody else or acting in a criminal way or an abusive way. It's clear from the rest of this passage that there are certain kinds of bold and honest speech that must happen. The kind of complaining here is the kind of complaining that creates a culture and a Christian community where people are all putting themselves in the position of experts on the lives of everybody else. (laughs) It's like a Christian community that are not living as if Jesus is Lord. It's a community of armchair critics, quick to speak critically of others. And now it can be done very subtly, of course, can't we? We We can complain about others by casually letting somebody know with perhaps plausible deniability about their repeated failings. We can build up a loyal group of supporters, perhaps, who think positively of us and negatively of somebody else. And cumulatively, we can tear down other people in that way. The person who is seeking to cultivate a patient heart in light of the Lord's coming will resist anything that might breed this kind of culture. Second, speaking in the name of the Lord, cultivating a patient heart with regards to our speech is the courage to speak in the name of the Lord. See there, verse 10, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessed those who have endured. 
You've heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome from the Lord. The Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So speaking up for the truth of the Lordship of Jesus, his return and how we are accountable to him and will all one day stand before him, that kind of speech is rarely popular. In fact, throughout history, many Christians have been martyred for doing just this. But waiting patiently on the Lord in light of his return, perhaps counterintuitively, involves courageously and confidently speaking of the Lord in these last days while there's still time. BHP shares are going to be worthless, you know. The motivation to do this now, despite the suffering and rejection that might come from those around us, the motivation is not just because of the coming judgment and that we will all stand before our maker and everyone will stand before our maker and our judge on the last day. That's a motivation enough, is it not? That should strengthen our hearts to speak with boldness and courage to those we know and love about Jesus. But the other motivation is there in verse 11. The Lord is very compassionate and merciful. We speak with boldness and courage in the name of the Lord in these last days because we know that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful, desires everybody everywhere to turn back to him, to accept the forgiveness that he offers, to spend eternity in his presence. And so patient endurance looks like bold, courageous speech in the name of the Lord, speaking of the certainties of who he is, what he has done, what he offers, and the forgiveness he offers on his future return. Third and finally, the final example given here is about honest speech and not making oaths. See there in verse 12. Now, above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. Your yes must be yes and your no must be no so that you won't fall under judgment. See again, in light of the judgment, that kind of speech. Now, it can be a bit tricky to get a sense of the backdrop of these particular verses, it doesn't seem to be a blanket command to never make an oath uh, like in a courtroom setting as a way of respecting the legal system and those kind of things. What seems to be on view here is possibly the practice where people would use the power of oaths and those kind of things to manipulate people and get their way rather than simply the integrity of their character and the trustworthiness and truthfulness of their word. Uh, You know, certain things pop up in your news feed and you don't really, you're not going looking for them. I just remember um, that ugly incident with Michael Clark up at Noosa that got, um, you know, and I just remember there was some, there was some footage where he was trying to convince, Catching an argument with one of, uh, I think his partner at the time, trying to convince his partner that he didn't have an affair. He's like, I swear on my life, I swear on my daughter's life, it never happened, it never happened, right? Now, I don't care what happened, and I wish, I don't, you know, these kind of things don't come across your newsfeed, and you just think these, this is other people's lives. And, but you relate, you know, that idea of swearing on my life, swearing on this and that. It's, it's often because for whatever reason, we need in that moment our words to carry extra weight. We need them to be trusted more than they would normally. You know that experience. You know, we kind of feel like, I want my words just to get over the line and convince you, whatever they are, because you're not going to trust me 
based on what I normally say. Now, there can be a Christian version of this kind of oath-making. Consciously or subconsciously, we can seek to give our words sometimes more weight in a community than they actually have. We might be trying to work out, let's say, wisdom on a particular decision or course of action. We might say something like, well, God has put on my heart that we really should do dot, dot, dot. Now, the effect often of those kind of things where everyone else in the discussion is, well, who am I to argue with God, right? We can invoke the name of heaven in our speech, sometimes as a way to get the outcome that we want. Consciously or subconsciously, we can try to control our environments. We can avoid difficult conversations. If someone says, why did you... You, you know, are you, why did you do such and such? Or why are you thinking about, I don't know, leaving church and you just, or whatever it is and say, oh, I feel God is leading me to do X, Y and Z. And then, well, there goes the discussion. And we can avoid thinking carefully about things as God's people by invoking powerful speech patterns. But for the person who knows whose opinion of us matters the most, the Lord's, We don't need to make oaths. We don't need to Christianise our speech to get outcomes that we want. We can simply tell the truth and be people of integrity and honesty. Now, of course, that doesn't just mean blunt honesty for the sake of it. Well, tough love. No, wisdom involves speaking the truth in love at the right time. The same things can be said at different times. and Sometimes it can be loving and unloving. The point here is to not try to give our speech more power and cut through so we can stay in control and get our way. It's about being people who are trustworthy, whose patience comes from living in light of the Lord's return. We have covered a lot of ground and thanks for your patient endurance (laughs) this morning. We have seen over this whole section, haven't we, the wisdom of living in the present, in light of the future, in light of what we know we can't control about the future. Our lives are short. What we do know about the future, the Lord will return. We are accountable. The call to cultivate that patient heart where we don't tear down our community with our speech. We build it up. We speak boldly in the name of Jesus and we speak honestly and with integrity and trustworthiness. Let's pray.